Involving the family in the treatment of schizophrenics can greatly increase the likelihood of a positive outcome, but how do you do it? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt, Director of Foothills Psychiatry and Foothills Foundation in Boise, Idaho. I'm your host, and with me today is Dr. Steve Lamberti. Dr. Lamberti is Associate Professor of Psychiatry and Director of the Severe Mental Disorders Program at the University of Rochester Medical Center, where he currently oversees schizophrenia treatment and research. His research is aimed at developing new treatment approaches for adults with schizophrenia, especially those at risk for repeated arrest and incarceration. Dr. Lamberti has published numerous articles on the treatment of schizophrenia, and his work has received national recognition, including the 1999 APA Gold Award and the 2004 APA Van Ameringen Award. Welcome. Thanks, Leslie. It's great to be here. Uh, well, thanks, Steve. I appreciate you being on the show today. And this is something I think that many of us struggle with. How do you begin to get the schizophrenic patient's family involved in treatment, especially when the patient may be kind of paranoid and avoidant to begin with? Well, it's all about reaching out. But before I talk about it, let me just make the observation that until very recently, we've done a terrible job I'm talking about the mental health profession in general. We've done a terrible job of reaching out to families. In fact, some of our theories of schizophrenia have actually blamed families for the problem. I don't know if you encountered this in residency, Leslie, but when I was a resident not that long ago, in the mid-'80s, uh, they were still teaching about schizophrenogenic mothers. Did you ever encounter that? Yeah, you know, and once I became a mother, it really pissed me off. <laughs> That's right. We pissed off a lot of mothers that, you know, had that feeling like, gee, you know, I didn't cause this. And then there was that whole idea about the double bind uh, model that parents drove their kids crazy by giving them mixed messages. You know, now that I'm a parent, I, I feel more vulnerable that my kids are going to drive me crazy <laughs> <Right>. than the <laughs> opposite. So I think we have to appreciate that we've kind of alienated families, and many families have kind of learned to deal with the burden of schizophrenia on their own in silence in social isolation. I think once we can accept that reality, we can start to do some good. Uh, Typically, when I'm meeting a family for the first time, I like to ask them a simple question. I like to ask them, what's your experience been like with the mental health system? I strongly recommend clinicians to simply ask that question. What's your experience been like with our system up to now? Tell me what your journey's been like because that really empowers families to share what they've been through. And typically, it's, it's not good. I think reaching out also means that when we meet the patient, we should also meet the family. Now, the biggest argument I hear against doing that is confidentiality, that um, if we meet with family members, we're violating patients' right to privacy. My reply is that it really depends on whether you believe that it's important or not. Let me give you a vignette. A couple of years ago, remember clearly, I admitted a new patient to my clinic. We'll call him David. And I walked out to greet him in the waiting room. And he was there. I took him back to my office. We spoke for about a half hour. As the session wrapped up, 
I just got a funny feeling about this patient because he made the comment in the middle of our interview, Dr. Lamberti, under no circumstances are you to contact my mother. So at the end of the session, I asked him, I said, David, by the way, how did you get here? And he said, my mother. (laughs) And I said, oh, is she here? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, would you mind if I just said a quick hi to her? And I stood up and I could see him on the fence wondering, should he allow it or not? And then he rolled his eyes and he said, okay. (laughs) So he and I walked out together and his mom was there extremely thankful to meet me. And I said, your son is told me how important confidentiality is to him. So I'm going to keep the results of our sessions very confidential, but I just wanted to say hi to you. And if you ever had any concerns, give me a call because we're all on the same team. And that ended up working out very well. Yeah, it makes great sense. You know, one of the things that worried me when the whole HIPAA legislation uh, was enacted was that this might be an excuse for people not to involve the family, where where clearly HIPAA doesn't affect that at all. You just have to get permission like we always did. You have to get permission. And even if you don't get permission, nothing prevents a family member from calling you with a concern. You may not be able to divulge healthcare information, according to HIPAA, but you can listen to family members' concerns. Mm -hmm. And it's in our patient's best interest if they, for instance, become suicidal for a family member to be able to call and say, listen, I know that your treatment's confidential. I just need you to know that my son's at home right now saying he's going to kill himself. Because put yourself in the position of that family member. You need help. And if you can't reach out to care providers, then you're not going to receive it. And I think it's really in our best best interest of our patients to build those. Yeah. And imagine how frustrating it would be to have the voice on the phone tell you, oh, no, I can't possibly talk to you. Yeah, I think that that's the opposite of good clinical care. What about, I think you kind of alluded to it in David's story, but the patient that is paranoid and, you know, thinks you are talking about them and you are talking about them, how, how do you get around those kind of issues? The less you say to a paranoid patient, the more paranoid they get. So I like to make it simple in black and white. So what I told David was, David, I will never call your mom without your permission. Everything that we talk about in this session is confidential. The only exception is if I think you're a danger to yourself or others, because then I'm obligated ethically to intervene. And most patients will understand that, okay, so whatever we talk about, it's confidential, but if you think I'm going to kill myself or somebody else, you'll make phone calls. I think that's reasonable, but you have to make that distinction um, with patients. And you need to treat the paranoia. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Leslie Lunch, your host, and with me today is the Director of the Severe Mental Disorders Program at the University of Rochester Medical Center, Dr. Steve Lamberti. We are discussing family involvement in the treatment of schizophrenic patients. Now, Steve, does family involvement really affect relapse in schizophrenia? Absolutely. Family involvement and in particular, a new type of treatment called family psychoeducation. It's second only to antipsychotic drugs in terms of its relapse prevention abilities. And what kind of therapy is this? Psychoeducation. Let me say more about that because I think one of the reasons that many clinicians are uncomfortable partnering with families is simply because they don't know how to. 
most of us psychiatrists, we're not family therapists. In the 1980s, uh, Carol Anderson and Jerry Hogarty developed a new form of treatment called family psychoeducation, and it's a wonderful form of treatment. And if you go online and simply Google family psychoeducation and schizophrenia, you'll actually find how-to manuals that have been published by the National Institute of Mental Health, National Alliance of the Mentally Ill. There's a lot of information about how to do family psychoeducation. But it basically has three simple phases. The first is joining with families, as we talked about earlier, uh, getting together with them, learning about their experiences, setting the rules for communicating, and forming a therapeutic alliance. The second phase is the sometimes called survival skills workshop or educational workshop. And this is getting several families together and just doing some basic teaching about what schizophrenia is and what it isn't and what medications do and what they don't do. That meeting is a chance not only to educate families, but for families to begin to support each other and develop social networks. And then the third phase uh, is the meeting phase. We like to use a form of psychoeducation, which is a multi-family format, which means getting five or six families together once every two weeks for a year. And during those meetings, you teach them about problem solving, you teach them about communication skills, and you take the position that as a psychiatrist, you're the expert in treatment, but as family members and patients, they're the expert in the illness. And together, you put your heads together to solve uh, the issues that emerge and to promote recovery. Now, given the stigma that surrounds serious mental illness, especially schizophrenia, isn't it difficult to get these family members to be in the room with other people that aren't related to them? Well, see, that's just it. We like to think that we're experts as psychiatrists or nurses or social workers, but the reality is that we don't have as much credibility with families as other families do that are struggling with the same problem. Because what I'll find when I'm meeting with a group of families is there will be something that um, I've been telling a particular family for months, and they don't seem to be grasping. But when they hear the same thing from another family that also has a daughter with schizophrenia, they get it because it's a different level of credibility. So I think that getting families together is actually stigma-busting. It normalizes the experience of having a loved one with mental illness and it emphasizes that the feelings they're having are normal reactions to a difficult situation, not something that's their fault. And certainly it's a model well used in other disorders. Yes. Unfortunately, what the data has shown is that even though family psychoeducation is an evidence-based practice, which has been proven to reduce relapse rates, only one out of every four families that could benefit from this intervention is getting it. So it's highly underutilized. Is there any resource that we could find out? Again, many of our audience members are, are not psychiatrists. If they have schizophrenics in their practice and they'd like to offer this as a resource, how can they even find out who does this kind of work? It's extremely easy. I would recommend just Googling multifamily groups or multiple family groups and schizophrenia, and Googling an author called Dr. William McFarlane, and that's M-C-F-A-R-L-A-N-E. 
Dr. McFarland originated the multifamily group model, and he wrote the textbook, Multifamily Groups in the Treatment of Severe Psychiatric Disorders. But if you just Google multi or multiple family psychoeducation, or even family psychoeducation, you'll be shocked at how much information is available online, including how-to treatment manuals. Having been in this business for a while now, I'm struck at how easy it is to run these groups and how extremely effective they are. I want to thank our guest today, Dr. Steve Lamberti. We have been discussing the benefits of involving the schizophrenics family in their treatment. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.